Good morning. It's good to see you. It is good morning. We're going to be in Romans chapter 1. If you want to go ahead and turn there in your Bibles, if you don't have one, we have black Bibles under the seats throughout the room. I encourage you to grab one. Uh, this morning, as always, just to see uh, God's Word for yourself. And, uh, and so uh, we're entering into a new uh, section of the series, uh, Letters to the Church, where we are going to start in Romans. And in about seven weeks, we're going to skip through it. And so um, several people have been giving me a hard time. Uh, asking, are we really going to get through Romans in seven weeks? We're not going to get through it all. We're going to skip through some major themes in Romans in about seven weeks, and then we'll get to Galatians where we'll stop and go verse by verse again, and then Colossians after that. Uh, So really what we're going to do with Romans is just look at some primary theological themes that set for us as a church our theology. And so the subtitle of this leg of the series is uh, The Theology of the Church. Now, Uh, Romans by no means is completely comprehensive of everything that we believe, but it has a lot in it. Now, just some background on Romans as we get started. Um, Probably of all the churches that Paul wrote to, he was least familiar with the Roman church. Matter of fact, we don't know for sure how the church actually got started. There's a good chance, and, and most probable, is that some Jews from Rome were actually at uh, the, the events in Acts 2 of Pentecost and heard the gospel preached from Peter and then responded in repentance and baptism and went back to Rome as believers and began to assimilate themselves as a church. That's most probable of what happened there. So as Paul writes, he writes with a little more length and he covers a lot more topics, again, probably because he was least familiar with them and what they had learned and believed. Um, but just to give you some time reference, so Jesus resurrects from the dead around 30 to 33 A.D., uh, and so about 15 plus years later, the church convenes in a council in Jerusalem to deal with a major issue that had arisen in the church between the Jews and the Gentiles. Now, we know that, that the first seed of this church in Rome were Jewish believers, but they were submerged in a Gentile culture. And so a lot of what Paul writes in Romans helps them navigate that issue of Jew and Gentile to sort through uh, the, the issues that had come up. Uh, some other things that are helpful to understand as you go into it. So in around, so it was around 30 to 33, Jesus resurrects from the dead. You have the Pentecost moment. Most likely the, the beginning, uh, the conception of the church in Rome. The Jews go back to Rome and start gathering together as believers. This is what we heard from Peter. This is what we heard from the apostles. This is what the Holy Spirit is doing in us and through us. And so uh, one thing that is important to understand is around 49... Uh, so you're almost 20 years later, Claudius, an emperor, kicks the Jews out of Rome. So there's a major separation now between the Jews and Gentiles. And they don't actually get to return back to Rome until around 54 under the reign of Nero, who basically is going to invite them back to town just to torture them. Uh, and so it's, it's actually after that that Paul writes this letter. So they've been through a lot. Starting this church without a whole lot of knowledge and help. We don't have any clear evidence that any of the apostles were there at the beginning to help them get started. Then they're facing all this persecution, submerged in a Gentile culture, only to be kicked out of town and then to be invited back to town to be persecuted. And so this is the background of the setting into which Paul is writing, most likely from the church in Corinth, which is where we finished last week, Paul's letter to the church in Corinth. All right. Uh, something else we know about the letter, if you read all the way through and get to chapter 15 and 16, is that Paul was hoping to visit uh, the church in Rome to set a platform to then move to Spain to advance the gospel. 
Uh, the gospel had not yet advanced to Spain. And so he's writing them saying, listen, I'm hoping to be with you that I might gain some encouragement and some support to head to Spain to move the gospel forward. All right. Now, as we, as we move through the series, what we're going to do is we're going to follow Paul's series of questions that he asks. Um, it was Martin Luther, uh, one of the uh, igniters and fathers of the Reformation, Reformation movement in church history, who said about the book of Romans as he wrestled through it, uh, the questions that Paul asked. He says this, I lay hold of Paul and I beat him until he gave up the answers. And that was his way of describing how thick the theology is of Romans and how we have to wrestle through every word, every phrase, every verse, every chapter of the book of Romans. So we're going to do that. We're going to follow this pattern of questions. Here are some of the questions that Paul sets out to answer, just some helpful insight on where we're going. First thing is, is this, can a person become right with God by seeing and celebrating God through nature? We're going to deal with that one today, one of the first questions that Paul deals with. Another one is this, right after that, can a person become right with God by pursuing and obeying the law? The next question he's going to ask, and, and the background helps, helps us understand why this question was asked, what advantage is there for a believer or a Christian who is also a Jew? What advantage does that believer have, if any? Another one is this, if we are made right with God through the gospel, how then was Abraham, remember these are Jews, Abraham a significant patriarch in their upbringing and their faith, and how was Abraham saved? If we're saved through the work of Christ, who came years after Abraham, how was Abraham then saved, or was he? Another question, if God's grace covers all our sin, then why should we try to stop sinning? We're getting close to chapter 6 and 7 now with these questions. Uh, Here's another one from Romans 8. Can anything separate a believer from the love of God? How can God be just if he is sovereign or in control over everything? How can he be just and sovereign and still hold us accountable for our sin? We'll dabble in this a little bit this morning, but we'll actually get there in a few weeks. Uh, Of course, how does a person get saved or become right with God? That general question how does, God, how does the gospel work from person to person to save the lost? Where does faith come from? And this question towards the end of Romans is, who actually are the children of God? Just the Jews? Or are the Gentiles a part of that equation as well? So there's just a few questions that Paul works through. And so he's great at asking a question that he wants to answer and then answering it. With that, oh, I'm glad you asked. And then he answers it. So we're going to start in Romans 1, starting in verse 1. We're going to hear Paul's intro into this letter. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was a descendant from David, according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, both fully man, related to David and Abraham, fully God, revealed by the Spirit. Verse 5, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among the nations, including you who were called to belong to Jesus Christ. And then this beautiful greeting to all those in Rome who were loved by God and called to be saints. Grace to you and peace from God our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Now, the, the title of today's sermon comes from that verse 7, a grace that leads to peace. Let's talk about this for just a moment. Now, if you're taking notes, I'll be giving you the blank, fill in the blanks as we go along. So first and foremost, what do we mean by peace? What we're talking about, what Paul is alluding to, to here, is internal peace. It's important to distinguish that in our culture today, especially when so much of the peace movement has to do with manipulating and controlling circumstances, right? The, the peace movement that began in, what, the 60s, that really was more about a different movement that was under the guise of peace. But the idea is still the same, that if we can make everything around us calm then we'll have peace. But the peace that Paul is talking about, he's writing into a circumstance that is surrounded by chaos and persecution, saying you can still have an eternal peace through the grace of Christ. And so this is the peace that he's getting at, a peace that is stable, that is sustained, a peace that is not shaken when the world around us begins to shake and rattle. But this peace can only be had through the grace of Christ. And so the first thing he does, he does an overview of the gospel. And one of the most important things I think we could point out here and always when we go to the gospel is this. The gospel is not a superstitious prayer. Repeat this after me. Close your eyes. Click your heels three times. And all of a sudden, you're going to be moral and your closet's going to be filled with the right clothes to wear to church and you're going to have the lingo down and everything's going to be good. Now, we would never say it that way, but sometimes as a church, we perpetuate that. If you want to be like me, repeat this prayer after me, click your heels three times, and act like me. And what Paul does, I love this, is he says this, that the gospel is not a system, it's a person. The, the peace of God is found in the person of Jesus. Uh, our worship leader, Jason Lewis, last week alluded to that as he introed that song we sang earlier, inviting the Lord's presence, that it's actually the Lord's presence that we want. That's what sustains us in the midst of chaos and actually makes our joy sweet is the presence of God. That's what we want. We don't just want him to make the, the waters calm. We want to be with him. And so this peace of God that we're after here is found in the person of Jesus and him alone. If you've come to church thinking that church is going to fix you, I'm glad you're here, but it's not. As we'll see today, neither will anything in creation nor simply being moral. We need the person of Christ more than anything. Let's skip down to verse 16 as Paul lays out his, what I believe to be, thesis statement for the whole letter. Verse 16 Chapter 1, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. He just covered in brevity what it is, and he says now, I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first. Now we kind of understand what he's saying here, right? Where did the gospel start? In Jerusalem. And Jesus even said, right, take this gospel. Start here in Jerusalem, then move out to Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. This gospel came first to the Jews, and he's writing to this church that was started by Jews. First to the Jews, but it doesn't stop there. Also to the Greek, or the Gentiles, or the Romans. Verse 17, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now, two things I want to point out here, and we'll start here with this. 
Um, Paul's boldness for the gospel, you know, he says that, I'm not ashamed. If we're not careful, we'll read that and we'll just see Paul is a courageous guy. He's that man's man. He's courageous. He's not ashamed. Doesn't care what people think. But I love how he qualifies why he's not ashamed. Not because he's something, right? But because the gospel is something. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And then verse 17, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed. That's why I'm not ashamed. Because it's powerful. Because it reveals who God is and how we can be right with God. And that's why I'm not ashamed in the midst of persecution and suffering and opposition and naysayers and those who would mock me and make fun of me and even attempt to kill me. That's why I'm not ashamed. Because I believe it. Because I believe it. The second thing I want to I point out here has to do with righteousness and unrighteousness. So, If peace is what we're after through the gospel, then let's talk for a minute about lack of peace and what ultimate lack of peace actually is. Because there are layers to not being at peace, right? Um, You may have experienced this on the way to church today. A little spat arose between you and your significant other, and there was a lack of peace for a moment, right? Um, I heard this saying that, uh, the house, uh, I am doing, at any given moment, I am as peaceful as my worst child is behaving or something along those lines. Our children create chaos in the house and environments and certain restaurants and things we avoid because of the chaos that comes, right? But there are deeper levels and layers to lack of peace. Diagnosis of cancer from a doctor, uh, a phone call that a relative has fallen deathly ill or passed away, um, an argument that turns into division and two people walk their separate ways. But there's a deeper layer of this lack of peace that I believe that we're going to get at today. And it's the lack of peace that comes from unrighteousness or not being right with God. An ultimate lack of peace that I believe Paul is after here. Um, The author of Hebrews in chapter 3 and 4 talks about what we have in Christ as this rest. The the peace of God is described as a a rest that we finally have once we come into a relationship with Christ. And even we'll allude back to and quote Genesis uh, to, to teach this to us. That the idea of the garden was this, that man was at rest. His soul was at rest. Why? Because he walked in the garden, in the presence of God. It wasn't until unrighteousness entered the equation that, that an unrest entered in, an anxiety, a shame, a guilt entered in, and the fellowship was broken with God. And so ultimately what we're after in our restoration of relationship with God is to get back to that restfulness, that sense of my soul is at rest. You see, that's, that's where we can look at circumstances around us that may be unfolding or chaotic and still be at peace when our soul is at rest. And the only way that is attained is to be right with God. Matter of fact, look at verse 18. I believe there's an explanation here. For the wrath or the anger of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and what? Unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Could there be any more unrest than to know 
that God is angry with you. And we can refuse to believe it, but it doesn't go away. And for man, whether a man or a woman grows up in church or whether they grow up in a tribal village, as we'll see in just a moment, we are acutely aware of our unrighteousness, whether we want to admit it or not. And this is the place of deepest unrest. If you're here today and you don't know Christ, part of that lingering shame and guilt and discomfort and maybe just unrest in your soul quite possibly is the fact that you've never come face to face with the living God in a right relationship. And at that moment, the peace that surpasses all understanding will overwhelm you and the world around you may be falling, but inside you're at rest. Verse 19. For what can be known about God is plain to them. Speaking of those who are unrighteous. Now, you could be thinking about um, a remote village, a tribe that's out in the middle of the jungle, never heard of God. You could also be talking about somebody who grew up in downtown Fort Worth who's never known God. And in both cases, what Paul is going to address apply for what can be known about God is plain to them. Well, what do you mean by that? Well, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, so his power and his nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so that they are without excuse. What is he saying there? He's saying that anytime you step out into creation, you're being exposed to the power and the nature of God. I'll just give you a couple of examples of how we see this play out in uh, anthropology and human nature. Um, just some samples. One would be uh, the universal idea of beauty. Okay? Now, beauty, the standard of beauty varies from culture to culture, from generation to generation. Um, it, it, it changes quickly in, in the United States. What was beautiful yesterday is no longer beautiful today. Thank God. That's why we look at our yearbooks, our annuals in high school, and go, what was I thinking? Like, oh my gosh, how did I walk through doors with bangs that high? I don't know. Just a sample, right? Beauty is, is fleeting. It's always changing. But you'll, you'll not find a culture anywhere in human history that didn't have some standard of what was beautiful. Right? Illustrated in the arts, illustrated in architecture, whether it was a teepee or a, or a, a church or a house. We reveal what we call or what we think is beautiful. And there's a, the idea of the standard of beauty reveals something, that there actually is something that is called beautiful. And nature reveals that beauty to us. So when you stand at the edge of the Grand Canyon, you behold the magnitude of what you can't measure, and you see its breadth and width and depth. You, you're overwhelmed. Or you stand at the foot of Mount Rainier or, or a huge mountain, and you're overwhelmed by the size, and you feel so small. In those moments, you're, you're, you're being exposed to it. You're seeing the grandeur and the power, the character and the nature of God. Another example would simply be the order of the created world. Now, I'm, I'm never afraid to talk through theories on, on how the world came into be. I, you know, I, I feel like I land in, and I know what I believe, and, but the theories don't intimidate me. I talk through those things, but, but I find some of them to be somewhat humorous, um, like the idea of, of, of a big bang, a chaotic bang, and then all of a sudden things reassembled into order. 
um, the probability of that I find to be a little bit humorous. And so I had a, a guy, at, I was speaking at, at the youth camp a few weeks ago and was talking with the worship leader, and he said, it's kind of like this. It's like a 747 uh, is flying over the state of Texas at 30,000 feet, and then it explodes, explodes into millions of little pieces. But somehow, in the power of the explosion, it creates a, a vacuum or, a, or a, a gravitational force that by the time all the particles reach the earth, they somehow assemble themselves into a Lexus. And I thought, well, that's a fairly decent illustration of what we're assuming happened if there was this big chaotic boom and then particles all came together and, and all of a sudden came together. Now, you think statistically, what would it take for that to actually happen? We'd say that's impossible. And see, it begins to reveal what I would say is, 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 is a ridiculous theory on how order came to be. I believe the order of the created world reveals the character of God. I have no other explanation. We can get into origination of species and all those discussions, but at the end of the day, I have no other explanation but that God caused order to happen. Right? And we go out into the created world. As a matter of fact, on earth, wouldn't you agree with me that the only chaos that we really see on the face of the earth is derived from man, the heart of man? I mean, everything else portrays order, sequence, seasons, it's the heart of man that creates chaos on earth, right? That's why our news feeds are full of things going on in, in the Gaza, in Iraq, and we see newsline after newsline of chaos that's stirred from where? The heart of man. So we could go on and on going into these examples. Uh, there are other men who've written. C.S. Lewis writes a great work on this in Mere Christianity. Um, and so I'd, there you go. There's a resource if you want to read it. About every three years I read through Mere Christianity and it still takes me a good four weeks to dredge through a little bitty book. Um, but but C.S. Lewis will, um, will walk you through some of these thoughts and processes, how you can see from the created world tangible evidence of a holy, powerful, order-driven God. So what Paul is saying is this. I don't care where you were born on the face of the earth, what generation you were born into, God's power and his nature have been revealed so that we are without excuse. Verse 21, then, for though they knew God, they did not honor him. So even though God revealed himself to every man and woman on the face of the earth since the beginning of time, man didn't respond with honor. They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but instead they became futile in their thinking and their foolish, foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for, this is an important part of this, exchanged the, the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, animals, and creeping things. What happened? Man takes his eyes and his affection off of the creator and places it on the creation. And it manifests itself, as we're going to see, in some real ugly ways. Whether it simply be uh, paying homage to um, you know, uh, some type of animal. We've seen you know, numbers of world religions who have animals at the, um, at the center of their worship and their understanding. I think on a practical level, we see uh, people groups developing a very practical um, uh, uh, response to this, not that it's right, but it begins with worship of like the fertility God, because why? There was an issue of, of, of infertility, or the God of the rains, because we need rains for our crops, or, you know, and so then there begins to be this polytheistic 
uh, belief that develops by seeing in this created world, there's got to be a God. And so rather than looking to him, I look at the created things and begin to develop this theology, this, this idea that somehow God is in creation. He is, is creation, this pantheistic, pantheistic or animistic belief system. We see it over and over and over and over again in human history. I see a reflection that there is a God. Well, rather than looking to him, I'm going to respond by looking to his creation. And the pinnacle of man worshiping creation is man worshiping himself. Exchange the image of an immortal God for the images of mortal man. And I would say the crescendo of all idolatry is when man or woman begins to worship themselves. If you're taking notes, there is nothing in God's creation that can satisfy the longing of a restless soul. Now, in our current culture, it's easy for us to dismiss that and go, well, it's been, you know, we don't see that in Fort Worth or in White Settlement or in Alito or wherever you may live. I don't see people worshiping unless it's, you know, know, this kind of temple that's set off. But I don't see people in general worshiping creation. And I would say, oh, oh, but we do. It just looks different. How do we know what is worship versus what is not? We look for where our affections are drawn, where our resources go, and what things we pursue. In our culture today, hobbies can become deity. In our culture today, we look for peace in a perfect 18 holes of golf or in this target weight I'm shooting for. Or in this next step in the career rung of the ladder. Now, these in and of themselves aren't bad things. right? We learned last week. We're supposed to enjoy the things God blesses us with. But when we take our eyes off of the immortal God and place them on mortal things and begin to pursue them, they become idols to us. And therefore, we begin to worship. And here's one way we would know this. What is it that you're looking to for peace? If you're looking for your spouse to become that perfect image you have in your mind, I would say this, you've made, a, you've made out your spouse to be an idol, this image that you want them to be. And, and you're pursuing, you're worshiping a false idol. And you think that that's gonna, oh, finally we'll have peace. If you would just act how I tell you to act and talk how I tell you to talk and respond how I tell you to respond, what are we doing? We're trying to manipulate circumstances around us so we can have peace. I would just be at peace. <laughs> if the kids would just obey... If she would just do her job, then I would be at peace. And what we talk, that's an external circumstance, manipulating people or circumstances trying to find peace. That's chasing after peace in creation. That's not what we're after here. We're after a peace for the restless soul. And that peace can only come when our eyes are fixed on the immortal God and not on his creation. If you're taking notes, I'll tell you what, let's continue reading a little bit more. Now, we're going to get into a fairly hot topic here, and so um, we'll go for it, and then we'll come back and talk about it. Starting in verse 26, for this reason, God gave them up to, dis- to dishonorable passions. Okay, so there's that idea of worship. They were pursuing passionately things of earth, not God. So God gave them up to those passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, 
men committing shameless acts with men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Now, we just, we just hit a hot topic in our culture. And the, the conversation and the debate over um, homosexuality, I find to be in most cases that I'm exposed to it, especially on a public level, is foolish. I hear a lot of foolishness coming, both from a world that doesn't believe in Jesus and also from a church that claims to believe in Jesus. I hear a lot of foolishness, okay? Now, we're not going to have time this morning to diligently give ourselves to this topic and cover it biblically and understand how it plays out. And so um, we're just going to hit a couple of things that I think are important for us to understand. Now, I know, I know just firsthand that... Um, Homosexuality has affected a number of families in our congregation. Many of you have children or relatives or close friends. And, and those of you who've confided in me, I've, you've revealed to me there's a struggle. And so I know you're struggling. Um, I myself have had my own struggle through this topic through the years. I'll share a little bit of that with you in, in, in just a moment. But here's where the debate tends to land in a foolish way, okay? On, on, on one hand, um, the church would come out and say, homosexuality is sin, it, therefore all sin is a choice, so it's 100%, it's a choice. And thereby enter into a debate with the people on the opposite end of the spectrum and say, it's not a choice, I was born this way, I didn't choose this, therefore God can't hold me responsible or accountable. That tends to be the ends of the debate. And so we, we go at each other. And people like Barbara Walters or... These, these, uh, these anchors will interview people from, uh, like Larry King will interview you know, a conservative pastor and a, and a liberal theologian and, and kind of debate the issue. And, and, and I've yet to see a conversation that was, one, edifying, two, that wasn't dripping with foolishness. Let's, let's talk about it for just a minute, okay, church? Um, first of all, if you're here today and, and you're not a believer in Jesus, um, I want you to know that as a church, we have, to, we have to coach one another. We have to encourage one another into right thinking because we all live in a culture of wrong thinking. And so part of this conversation is going to be that. Um, I grew up in a culture, and when I got involved in church, it was reflected in the church culture that set apart homosexuality as the unforgivable sin. People even said that with their words to me, and, and many others displayed that. And so I grew up in that way of thinking. I had a, a couple of personal experiences, and I'll share one with you, just being vulnerable about my own struggle with this. Um, I was in the construction field, and I uh, worked for a company. There were three of us who were uh, general foremans who led different crews, and, uh, and most of us went to the same church. And, uh, and there, was a, there was a gentleman who was one of the general foremans, a very talented guy in construction. Matter of fact, more talented than the rest of us, if we were going to admit it, but had moved here from California, and uh, the guys on the job assumed he was gay. And rather than getting to know him, uh, displaying the love of Christ towards him, just finding out if it was even true, we, I participated, we talked behind his back. And it got so bad that we began to develop inside jokes among each other. And then it got, we got so bold with our inside jokes, we'd say them when he was walking by. He wasn't dumb. And he felt it. And he knew we all went to church together. Well, in this one particular instance, um, 
I had finished the job I was leading, and the, the owner of the company sent me to help this particular gentleman uh, finish his job. All the guys, all the resources went to this job. He was leading it, and I was supposed to come in and just help. Well, I, just being honest, like in my pride, I don't, I don't deal well with competing authority anyway. I don't, you know, I just, I've always struggled with people telling me what to do. and Tell me what to do, and I'll be glad to do it. But if you tell me what to do, I just have an issue. And anyway, this guy was leading the job, and I had all kinds of chips on my shoulder, and uh, in one particular instance, we couldn't agree on how something needed to be done. We had a crew up in the air, and they kept looking to me, how do you want us to do this? And I would answer, and he'd say, no, I want it to be done this way. And so division was setting in. He was feeling the tension of the guys. And so I got so frustrated, I quit doing what we were doing on this house, and I went to start working on the deck. A completely different project said, fine, I'll just go work by myself. Has to be done. What frustrated him, because now I was pulling away resources and energy from what was, he was being held accountable to do, and it frustrated him, and he confronted me about it, and, and he did so in a very appropriate way. And in my youthful pride and arrogance, I'll never forget. I mean, I had a, had a two-foot level in my hand. I got angry, and I got in his face. And I'll never forget him looking at me and looking at that level, and he just asked me, are you about to hit me with that? And I looked up at the air, and all the crew had shut down. Everybody was watching me, right? This is it. Go for it. Show him who's boss. I said, you know, I'm not. I walked away. Now, that wasn't the end of it. The Lord began to wrestle with me. And a few days later, I couldn't handle it anymore. I went before the Lord and said, what would you have me do? Because I don't feel good about this. And the Lord said, you need to go to him and you need to repent. And I said, wait a second. First of all, he's not a Christian, right? Second of all, what, what did I do? And so I, I'll never forget the conversation. I called him on the phone. I said, hey, this is Jason. He said, yeah, just very friendly to me. I said, listen, we know some things went down on the job, and I want to come talk to you. Sure, come on over. A few minutes later, I pull in his house. I don't know that I've ever been greeted with so much hospitality. Walked into his house. Said to him, I said, listen, I, I don't know how to go about this conversation, so I'm going to cut to the chase. Um, you, you know that I'm a Christian and that all of us on the job are supposed to be Christians. And he said, yeah. I said, well... And I started to blame it on the other guys. I said, well, the guys think. I said, no, no, let me stop back. I said, I, I think that you, you might be gay. And I, I just wanted to come ask you about it. And he said, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm gay. And I said, I want you to hear something. Because I am a Christian, I am called to love you the way Jesus loves you. And what I did the other day on the job was wrong. And all those inside jokes are wrong. And I want your forgiveness. And with more humility and grace than a non-believer should ever even understand, he extended it to me and said, I forgive you. Thank you for having the courage to come talk to me. I said, I didn't have the courage to come talk to you. The God working in me wouldn't let me not come talk to you, man. And I just want you to know, I want you to see a change in me from here going forward. One of the most humbling experiences of my life, repenting to somebody who's not a Christian and is homosexual for the way I had been a bigot the way I had slandered and perpetuated hatred towards somebody who didn't even know the love of Christ. Now, there's one example where the Lord began to shift my thinking on this idea and to understand that this is not the unforgivable sin. So many from the church world will read the passage we just read, right? Describing what homosexuality is, women you know, forsaking natural relations and having relations with women, men likewise, and then it says that God gave them over to their passions. 
See, right there. And they'll stop reading right there. Go, see, look, God gave them over. It's unforgivable. Can't come back. And I would say to that person, oh, you foolish person, keep reading. Keep reading the text. So, verse 26. Again, repeating the same phrase. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Okay, so this starts where we were. Now, verse 28, so just continuing that thought. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not be done. See, God gave up on them. Yeah, God, man, he didn't like that. He gives up on them. Verse 29, they were filled with all manner of of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, and malice. See, that's what God thinks about. Wait a second. They are full of envy, murder, strife. Deceit, maliciousness. Wait a second. He's not still talking about homosexuality. Keep reading. They are gossips and slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to their parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Isn't it ironic? that the church treats those who are publicly homosexual with the same list of descriptions that are connected with that sin. Is it sin? Yes. So is disobeying your parents. So is slandering people because you're not comfortable with their lifestyle. So is displaying hatred towards somebody who is publicly admitting a lifestyle that is contrary to God's word. The moment you pick up your picket sign with the hateful statement on it, you've just subjected yourself to the same list of sin. And could I offer this? That's not Paul's primary point here. His primary point is this, as we'll see throughout the next three chapters. Every man and woman has fallen short of the glory of the immortal God. These are just examples of how. Just some some examples of how. And we'll see in just a minute, that's the point of the gospel. And if you're offended on any level that God would call gossip sin or disobedience to your parents' sin or um, a sexual relationship outside of covenantal marriage sin, like if you're offended by that, you're offended by the gospel itself that says we all sin. And fall short of the glory of God. All of us are guilty. There is no room for haughtiness or hatred or pride among the people of God if they truly believe the gospel. Verse 32, though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but gave approval to those who practice them. Of course, this is all Old Testament, this is all past tense. This is man without a cure. Paul describing the issue. What is the root of sin? If you're taking notes, the root of sin is self-centered idolatry. Self-centered idolatry. Worshiping your desires, pushing your agenda trying to find peace and manipulating the world around you to conform to the way you want it to roll. One, that'll never lead to a genuine restful peace 
Two, that's pursuing creation rather than God. The root of sin is self-centered idolatry. That is when man withdraws his affections away from the creator and places it on the desires of his own heart. Whether it's a false god called Baal or a false god called 115 pounds, right? Supermodel figure. These things that are fleeting, that change with generations, and they're all foolish. And in the end, they'll never work to fix the issue the unrestful soul that's not right with God. Paul is not, nor is the Word of God, picking on any particular sin here. And it's equal sin, I believe, for the church to hijack a couple of verses and use them as a baseball bat or uh, to create some kind of picket line movement to perpetuate hatred or slander. And rather than gossiping and whispering, like, how about we, we press into our relationships with people? And because of the way I was raised, just being quite honest, I was uncomfortable with it at first. Um, it's, it's, it's so sad. I was, um, I was in a flight from Seattle back to Texas. And anytime I'm meeting somebody new, I always want the last thing to come up what I do for a living um, for a number of reasons. Not because I'm embarrassed, but just because the conversation just seems to go stale after that so many times. Um, I was sitting next to this lady and, and her partner, and we were just talking about what we're doing. I said, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm headed back from, from school and headed back to, to Dallas. And, okay, so what are you guys doing? Well, uh, my girlfriend's uh, mother or father was on their deathbed, and they were trying to make it to Houston uh, to, to, visit, to be there before the person passed away. And uh, so in the conversation, before they ever asked what I did, I, I said, man, I, you know, um, w- would it be okay if I just, can I have the name of that person? Um, I'd just like to pray. If you don't mind, I'd like to pray for them, especially, you know, in the next coming days. Sounds like you are going to have a really hard couple weeks, and I want to pray for you. And they were overwhelmed with joy and just, wow, you know, this is interesting. So what do you do for a living? And I'm like, oh, I'm, a, I'm a pastor. And all of a sudden, the conversation got awkward. Because immediately, what they began to feel by one of them's own admission was judgmentalism. And a few minutes later, the conversation began to gradually pick back up, and the awkwardness came back up, and we talked about it. I said, here's the thing. Like, um, I'm sorry if you've been hurt by the church. I'm sorry if you've been treated differently by the church. I want you to know. Um, I want you to know that I love you, and I'll pray for you just like I would any person, and I want you to know God loves you. And that was about as far as we got. plane was landing didn't get to, to fully express the gospel in that situation, but it did make a commitment to pray for that person over the next two weeks and did the whole situation. Now, that just illustrates this, this culture we live in. And, and many of us, as, you know, even some of you as parents, um, have, have experienced this where a child comes to you and says, hey, I think this is what, what I am or what I prefer or what I'm going to choose. And you've had to wrestle through that reaction. What's right? What's wrong? How do you navigate that? And I think somewhere along the way, we were told as Christians that if you disagree with something, you must make sure that everybody knows you, you hate it. And, and, and parents, I would say, I don't think that's a healthy approach at all. I think when your children ask you questions, it's important to share your convictions. Say, this is what I, this is what I believe is true. And, and, the, and the reason I believe that, and I would encourage you to go right to the scriptures, is because I believe the Bible. It's not just my opinion. Um, but I also believe that God will want to extend grace and love and mercy to you. 
And, and so I had a, a person even recently ask me, you know, hey, as a member, and we're going to be in a family environment setting. We know this is going to take place. And I just need to know, should I take my kids or not? I've had this question before. Should I expose my kids to this if I disagree with it? And so I always try to re-rack that question and say, well, let me just ask you this. Take that question off the table. What if on a Sunday morning somebody came into our church, a heterosexual couple, and they started making out on the back row? What would you want or expect us to do as a church? So, well, I think we probably should, you know, maybe catch them and ask them just nicely, hey, do you mind not doing this? I said, okay. Same thing's true in my home. You and your, your wife come over to my house. You start acting inappropriately in front of my kids. I'm going to ask you, hey, man, calm down a little bit. Get, you know, the whole, like, I don't want my kids exposed to that. I said, now, why would we have any other response? For me, that's, I, don't, I shouldn't have any other response. I would go. If things become, you know, to a point where you're displaying something you feel like, like then at that point, just very humbly, you can refrain. And I said, it's kind of like this. What if you had an uncle who dealt with alcoholism and did really vulgar, bad things when he was drunk? I said, would you take your kids around that person? No. I said, well, what about if that person, in a moment of sobriety, if they were calm and peaceful? Well, yeah, I wouldn't mind that. As long as they're not drinking, I said, okay. Like, why do we treat this sin as like it's some different thing that has to be treated on its own level? Like, as a parent, you have to navigate all kinds of issues and make decisions on what you do or don't expose your children to. But just make sure you're not allowing your discomfort with something, knowing what's going on that your kids may have no clue with, just make sure that that isn't being perpetuated to your kids above and beyond the idea of God's love and grace and mercy towards all of us who sin. Okay? You need to wrestle through that. If you come ask me, I'll give you my opinion, but I won't tell you what to do. You just need to wrestle through that. And just, I would say this, just make sure you're consistent because your kids will know the difference. Just make sure you're consistent because they'll know the difference. Now, we're going to move on and kind of get ready to land. And, and Paul is really crescendoing to another point here that's really, really important for us, especially here in the Bible Belt. Um, we're going to move to chapter 2. And I'm going to pick up in verse 12. Now Paul's going to talk about morality. Remember, he started off talking about creation, how God reveals himself in creation. And we talked about a few examples, how you can see God in creation. Paul's going to move to is this idea that morality is also part of that equation, right? So there's never been a culture on the face of the earth in human history where selfishness was admired, right? Selflessness, it's a universal moral. And we could go on and on through the list. This is what C.S. Lewis writes about in Mere Christianity, that there is a sense of morality. Now, we'll, we'll have different standards on the details of morality from culture to culture based on religion and all kinds of things. But the idea that there is a morality is universal. A set of li- rules, understood, formal, informal, right? There's a code to live by. So Paul addresses that in chapter 2, verse 12. He says, For all have sinned without the law. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without, perish without the law. What's he talking about? He's talking about the Jewish law. Even those who don't have the Jewish law will, will die without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. Both sides of the coin. What do, what do you mean by this? And he goes forward and says, verse 13, For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when the Gentiles, who do not have the law, by nature do what the law requires. How do they do that? Because as an object of God's creation... The law is still written on creation. There's guilt that comes with bloodshed. 
There's, there's a sense of shame that comes by breaking one of God's laws. Look at what he says. For when the Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the actual written law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while, they, while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even accuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. We'll read about three more verses in just a second. So here's what Paul is saying. Even those who don't have the law of Moses, they have a code of conduct and a moral law, and they can't even keep it. Go to any village, any tribe, any people group, and you're going to find violation of moral law. Otherwise, there wouldn't be a need for the law, right? And so they become a law unto themselves. And here's Paul's point. Morality, pursuing morality... And if you're taking notes, there needs to be a correction here. There's a really important word missing. Okay, so enter it in if you're taking notes. After the word will should be the word never. The morality of man will never provide peace for the restless and weary soul. The morality, pursuing morality, portraying yourself as more moral than you are, whether you're living by a code of conduct in a tribal village or according to the Jewish law, whichever way, Pursuing morality will never bring internal peace because you will always violate the law. Always. This is Paul's point leading up to Romans 3. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Whether it's the Ten Commandments or you live in a village with one law. I mean, Adam and Eve in the garden, how many laws did they have? One. How many did they break? All of them. Right? Right? And that's Paul's point here. Morality will never provide peace for the restless and weary soul. It doesn't matter how moral you have been when you slip on the x-ray gown and get up on the table for a body scan to find out how much cancer is in your body. All moral confidence will go out the window. It's why we have these great awakenings in the midst of that type of suffering because we realize I'm not near as good as I've portrayed and yet we talk to people often and say, do you think you're, you know, you're a Christian? Yeah, because I do good. What are they saying? Well, because of my morality, I think I'm a Christian. And Paul says, do not count on your morality. It will let you down every time. You pursuing morality will never bring you an inner peace. Why? Because it will never make you right with God. It doesn't work. Pursuing creation doesn't work. Pursuing morality does not work. Now, Paul will go on to say here, and then especially in Galatians. Now, if you could do it perfectly, it would work. The problem is you can't do it perfectly. Can't. Because why? Our hearts are bent towards sin. You know what I say oftentimes if somebody says, and I'm not even just talking about like the homosexual situations, but other situations, somebody says, well, I was born this way. That becomes the argument. You know what I say? I go, yeah, you sure were, and so was I. You know, absolutely. I may be born with a chemical imbalance that, um, just to put it in layman's terms, causes me to be less responsive to stressful situations, and so therefore I respond in anger. I mean, you could make a biological case for that, looking at the chemicals in the brain. Some people are more predisposed to be patient than others. You could build that case genetically. Absolutely. That's how we were born. Guess what Paul is going to ask in the end of Romans? Why does the potter still blame the clay? 
Is God just for holding us accountable for how we're born? Do you remember what David said in Psalm 51, his confession? He had an adulterous relationship with Bathsheba. Listen to the words of King David in Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. He's acknowledging what? He had made choices to to participate in sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you alone have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, listen to this. I was brought forth or I was born in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. You know what David's saying? I was born this way but I still need to own it. You see, being genetically predisposed to whatever sin struggle you may have doesn't excuse us from the responsibility of repentance. Again, I'm talking about, I I struggle with gossip. My mom was a gossip. My grandma was a gossip. I just, I'm having a hard time with it. That was on the list, by the way. You're, You're absolutely right. By nurture, you've been predisposed to be a gossip. It doesn't excuse your responsibility, though, right? We still have to own it and go, gossip is still unrighteous. It still does not measure up to God's holy standard on how to treat people, does it? And so we could go on and on and on. The morality of man will never provide peace for the restless and weary soul because we're born bent towards self-centered idolatry. My needs first, my needs now. Meet them or I'm going to cry. Meet them or I'm going to wail my hands. Meet them or I'm going to take my toy. You know, meet, like just go on through the progression of toddler to adolescence to adulthood. We are predisposed to take care of number one first. Sin, self-centered idolatry. Let's, uh, let's land on this. If you're taking notes, then here's our conclusion. And I'm going to read you a few words from Jesus. It is only the perfect righteousness that God provides. See the qualification? Perfect righteousness. All or nothing. Completely pure. Unadulterated. Haven't messed up on one little bit. Never gossiped. Never slandered. Never hated. Never spoken an ill word. It is only the perfect righteousness that God provides through the grace of Christ that can give peace to the restless and weary soul. That's why Paul, I believe, starts his letter there. A grace that leads to peace. Not a circumstantial peace, but a peace that is sustained regardless of circumstances. In the words of Jesus from Matthew 11, 28 and 29 and 30, he says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you what? Rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Going back to verse 16 and 17, the gospel, the reason he was so bold in the gospel, because it's a gospel that provides a righteousness by what? Faith. It's the only way you can attain it. It's the only way you can have a true sense of peace in the depths of your soul is by faith. I want to end on a couple of questions of reflection here. And um, as I do, I, you know, 
we've said this before. You know, we don't, uh, we try not to cherry pick topics according to our own agenda here. We try to move through and be faithful to the word as it's written. Um, I honestly, in my flesh, I didn't want to address this issue this morning and, and realize we haven't fully addressed it, okay? But it's there, right? Unless we put a ramp before it and jump over it, we have to deal with it. Um, if this is something that you are struggling with, either personally or because of somebody you know and love is struggling with it, I'm going to encourage you to, uh, to, to press in here at the church and to talk with um, our elders. And let's talk through some of those situations. And let's figure out how to create a healthy conversation where we're able to talk through our own uh, presuppositions, our own predisposed assumptions, and to get to a place where we can rest in the word of God, to love like God loves, but also to live as God lives. And so I'm gonna encourage you, if today has started something or stirred something in you that hasn't found its rest, please press in, let us know. I wanna talk more about this, okay? Now, that being said, I want us to ask ourselves in some individual questions of reflections, in what ways do you find yourself looking for peace in creation? In what ways, because this is Paul's primary point at the beginning, in what ways do you, don't worry about everybody else, what everybody else is doing, you, in what ways do you and me, how do we, in what ways do we find ourselves looking for peace in creation by, here's some examples, pursuing joy or peace in the things of God rather than God himself. God, if you'll just give me this, I'll be happy. There's an example, pursuing creation of the creator. This job, this thing, this toy, this whatever. No, right? It's okay to enjoy the things God blesses you with, but when they become your pursuit for peace, that's when we have an issue. How about this, manipulating circumstances? Any control freaks in the room? Yeah. Self-centered idolatry. You know what I'm learning now as I approach 40? I used to think I was so smart. If, 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 if everybody would just do this, everything would go really, really well. And now that I'm learning, you know, especially here as an elder where I collaborate with other elders and we work through things uh, to, towards a consensus and it's not always my way or the highway anymore like it was in construction, I'm realizing the foolishness of my own wisdom at times where I come into a conversation thinking, this is where we need to land. Let's go around and see what everybody else says and then I'll tell you, now I'm finding this something beautiful and God-honoring about me listening to the wisdom of others and, and transferring that from one to another and realizing that I don't want my way. I don't want this church to operate according to my way. I love working with our leadership team to talk through things and, 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 and to hear thoughts. And man, we gain so much wisdom from our leadership team. We quit trying to manipulate circumstances, controlling them. Obtaining possessions is one. You might be there. Just, you know, you have to be honest with yourself. As soon as I get this, I'll be happy. I'll be happy, right? I, whatever it might be. This new set of golf clubs, this new deer lease, this new figure, this whatever it is, this weight goal, this, when my, my children finally start doing this or that, and we place our joy in the circumstances around us. Here's another one. Using people. Using the people in your life to fulfill your own agenda. Um, one of my great grievances of my sinful past is seeing people as pawns or tools to press for my own agenda. Those are different examples of how we pursue creation over the creator. And we try to be God. This last question, do you ever find yourself striving to be good in order to find peace? And then I would follow that up with, how's that working out for you? At some point, you realize this is tiresome and you have to put on the facade, right? And pretend to be better than you are. And Jesus would say to you, hey, come to me. 
I'll give you real rest. I will fulfill all that's morally required of you, and then I will give you that righteousness as a gift. That's what I did on the cross. I want to pray for us and invite the worship team to come forward. Thank you.